Friday 2021 The Vines of Wrath and the Apocalypse Mirror which is a two-part musical exploration of Rudolf Steiner lectures on St. John's Apocalypse, the Book of Revelation with musical interludes from the Yorkshire band The Mekons and a couple of songs from Federale a splinter group from Brian Jonestown Massacre with a penchant for spaghetti westerns. I've selected these songs carefully, although also spontaneously, organically, and I've interspersed the readings and the commentary on the readings with these songs at regular intervals as a way to break into the intellectual predominance of this material and allow you, the listener, to move into a more visceral bodily flow of feeling. I suggest getting up, moving around and dancing, at the very least, listening to these songs, allowing them to wash over you, wash out all the previous content of language and whatnot, and uh, clear up the space um, for a communion with the transmission that goes all the way back first of all to Dale Brunsfeld reading these books, then to Rudolf Steiner lectures back in the early 1900s and then another 2,000 years back to St. John in that cave in Patmos receiving the initiatory revelation that we now have as the prophetic book of the Apocalypse second part of this audio musical it will be behind a play wall in the interest of protecting the unprepared from the inflammatory nature of this transmission So, as it turns out, this podcast on Rudy on Revelations is going to coincide with Easter, which seems somehow quite fitting with the focus on Christ and the resurrection and, of course, the apocalypse. Currently in the last days of Lent, leading up to Good Friday, four days from now, and I'm on the hoof I'm going to listen to these clips of Dale Brunsveld reading Rudolf Steiner on Revelation and then I'm going to respond if and as inspiration comes to me I have continued to have Reservations about Rudolf Steiner, or at least about focusing on him, not, not him the man, but and not necessarily even the work itself, but certainly focusing on it. But fittingly enough, Steiner himself addresses some of the reasons for my concerns in what follows. I'm less and less convinced that the legacy of Steiner anthroposophy is really such a great thing. Now, I haven't really dug very deep into it, but just 
just my early impressions on those who've adopted it and aligned themselves with it. It seems to me that we've fallen into the very trap that Stein himself warned about, which is uh, staying uh, on the scaffolding of occult knowledge and in fact turning the scaffolding into a kind of prison by which they can't even get in or out of their houses, i.e. their bodies. Scaffolding here being the intellect, the intellectually formulated truths about spiritual reality, so-called spiritual science, is only the means by which to enter into a communion, a bodily uh, alignment with and integration of that wisdom or that truth and uh, when that doesn't happen well something else closer to the opposite seems to happen as long as you build up a scaffolding you remain in the thought realm customary to you in the physical world the whole scheme we have sketched is only physical thought this is related to the full reality, not even like the inner framework of a house to the complete building, but only like the outer scaffolding upon which the builders stand. This has to be taken down again when the building is completed. In the same way, the scaffolding of thought has to be taken down again if one wishes to have the truth before one as it really is. If one considers this abstraction as the reality, and one is not by any means speaking of true occultism, but only of the concept which the man of the present day can form regarding the spiritual facts. The way in which spiritual facts are presented abstractly at the present time may be seen in such a scheme which in itself is unfruitful. I had to put it before you because we also need such a scheme, but fundamentally it is of no use to one who wishes to progress upon the truly occult path. If you describe the whole world up to the highest spiritual facts by means of such schemes, this only has meaning for your present incarnation. In the next you would have to learn it all over again. This can only be thought by using the brain. It is only adapted for the brain. But as the brain disintegrates at death, the whole schematic presentation then falls to pieces. On the other hand, if you comprehend at first in imaginative pictures what really happens, what we have described as the consecutive pictures of the seals seen by spiritual vision, that is something which is not bound up with your physical brain and which you retain after death because it does not originate from physical thinking but from facts seen clairvoyantly. Therefore one must take care not to mistake for real occult wisdom what is striven for after the pattern of physical comprehension which wants to standardize the higher worlds. This is a description by means of the ordinary physical intellect. Of course, the physical intellect must play a part. On this account it is useful to present such a scheme and we may now carry it a step further. But anyway, all that said, I continue to be amazed by Steiner's depths of insight 
And uh, I guess you could say that these podcasts are my own attempt to climb that scaffolding in a way that I can renovate my own house, so to speak, and make it a much more solid and habitable habitation. Um, That is to say, to make coherent, to tune into the kind of clairvoyant, visionary insight that Stein himself was communicating, I believe, and uh, incorporate it and embody it myself in such a way that the listener can potentially reap the benefits thereof and cast off the husk and dismantle the scaffolding of anthroposophy and all those anthroposophists along with it not counting the exceptions who really have integrated the wisdom and embodied it so first up is a section from the fourth lecture in the 1908 (laughs) Book of Revelations uh, lectures and it's specifically around the animal forms and uh, human evolution from them, through them well, let Steiner speak for himself but before I do let's mention the timing of this this is the day after I attended a Devashana event in which uh, he once again iterated the idea that we're animals and we need to become more fully animal. And, uh, well, although I understand where Dave's coming from, and of course I'm paraphrasing there, I do believe he's only speaking, as he always does, with a purpose in mind rather than for some literal uh, meanings. Uh, I did find myself wondering at that, although I'm in agreement with the, the need to get back to the primal and become more simple, primitive and natural as human beings. The idea that human beings are, are animals uh, is one that never really sat well with me, although I guess it depends who I'm talking to. And uh, I guess that's always the case, because there are plenty of forms of denial around human beings uh, being somehow entirely separate from animals, and that just leads nowhere, just as there are, well, the opposite approach, reducing us to beasts. Anyway, um... It's a juxtaposition, what Dave was saying, with what Stein is saying. Maybe there's a complementarity that uh, human beings really need to reconnect to their animal natures. Whereas what Stein is saying is, is that the animals themselves only exist because human evolution towards a more spiritual state has slowed off, sloughed off these animal forms as uh, physical uh, sediments of this lower nature that we are rising above.
In ancient times man had the various animal natures within him, as it were, but then separated them off one after another as side branches. All the animals in their different forms represent nothing other than human passions which condensed too early. What man still possesses spiritually in his astral body, the several animal forms represent physically. He kept this in his astral body until the latest period of earth existence, and hence he could progress the furthest. Man still has something within him which must separate itself from sensual evolution as a descending branch, as the other animal forms have done. What man has within him as tendencies to good and evil, to cleverness and stupidity, to beauty and ugliness, represents the possibility of an upward progress or a remaining behind. Just as the animal form has developed out of progressing mankind, so will the race of evil with the horrible faces develop out of it as it progresses toward spirituality and reaches the later goal of mankind. Thus in the future there will not only be the animal forms, which are the incarnated images of human passions, but there will also be a race in which will live what man now hides within him as a portion of evil, which today he can still conceal, but which later will be manifest. Let us make clear the chief thing that will appear by an illustration that may perhaps seem strange to you. We must understand that the separation of the animal forms was actually necessary to man. Each animal form, which separated in bygone times from the general stream, signifies that man had then progressed a step further. Imagine that all the qualities distributed throughout the animal kingdom were in man. He has purified himself from them. Through this he was able to develop further. If we take a muddy liquid and allow the gross matter in it to settle to the bottom, the finer part remains at the top. In the same way the grosser parts, which man would have been unable to use for his present condition of development, have been deposited like a sediment in the animal forms. Through man having cast out of his line of development these animal forms, his elder brothers, as it were, he has reached his present height. Thus man rises by throwing out the lower forms in order to purify himself, and he will rise still higher by separating out another kingdom of nature, the kingdom of the evil race. Thus mankind rises upward. Man owes every quality he now possesses to the circumstance that he has rejected a particular animal form. One who, with spiritual vision, looks upon the various animals, knows exactly what we owe to each one of them. All right, now I'm on the flat. <clears throat> Yesterday I walked eight hours. Well, I was out eight hours. I wasn't walking the whole time. I, mean, I fell asleep by a stream and stopped for food a couple of times. But pretty much walking that whole time. Didn't realize how much time had passed. I was late for the Dave event, half an hour. Um, I had no idea that I was out that long. And 
why do I mention this? Just a bit of context, really. Where I'm at, what's my life, what's going on. And I don't want this to just be some sort of intellect-driven exegesis that's all about amassing knowledge. It's not. It's about uh, integrating knowledge into some kind of practice and experiential reality. This bifurcation within the species is one that I've talked and written about for many years. I believe Dick, K. Dick used this term, bifurcation, first time I heard it. Uh, I was, of course, H.G. Wells and the Morlocks, although that's certainly not the kind of bifurcation that that uh, is predicted in Revelation. That's a kind of socially engineered perversion of it. Anyway, Dave mentioned uh, a week ago that the human species was dividing into two types currently, and that he put it in the context of um, those who uh, can only function in terms of straight lines, who are mind-oriented and therefore everything is regimented and uh, confined, restricted to the mental imposition of straight lines upon nature and then those who are in tune with nature which uh, of course extends into uh, not supernature into the uh, invisible dimensions of being that Steiner is talking about uh, and that who move uh, rotationally because uh, everything is, is rotating in nature which was uh, related to the opening chapters of uh, homo, homo serpens rings, everything is in rings so yeah, spirals, it talks about spirals, spiraling people similar to slippery people and uh, this is an example perhaps of how Dave will refer to some profound and provocative knowledge that corresponds with what we might call occult knowledge, but in a way that is almost childlike in its simplicity, very visual, very basic, not an awful lot that the intellect can do with it. Has to be much more experienced bodily, visually, sensorily. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is consistent with Dave's approach, and it's consistent with what Stein is talking about in, in this podcast. As you'll hear, that the intellect, if it's divorced from bodily, sensory, and spirit soul reality and experience, then is a is a is a tool of leverage and of um, uh, harvesting or handling by Satan who was the first uh, to succumb to the temptation of the intellect and its power to disconnect from reality from bodily reality which is the soul reality we have repeatedly said that our seven cultural ages will end with the war of all against all. Now this war must really be pictured quite differently 
from the way we have been accustomed to think of wars. We must bear in mind the foundation, the real cause of this war. Its foundation, or cause, is the increase of egoism, of self-seeking and selfishness on the part of man. And we have now progressed so far in our considerations that we have seen what a sharp two-edged sword this ego of man is. Those who do not fully realize that this ego is a two-edged sword will scarcely be able to grasp the entire meaning of the evolution of mankind and the world. On the one hand, this ego is the cause that man hardens within himself and that he desires to draw into the service of his ego his inner capacities and all the outer objects at his disposal. But, on the other hand, we must not forget that it is the ego that at the same time gives man his independence and his inner freedom, which in the truest sense of the word exalts him. His dignity is founded in this ego. It is the basis of the divine in man. This conception of the ego presents difficulties to many people. It has become clear to us that this ego of man has developed from a group soul nature, from a kind of all-inclusive universal ego out of which it has been differentiated. Thus the ego will be the pledge for the highest goal of man. But at the same time, if it does not discover love, if it hardens within itself, it is the tempter that plunges him into the abyss. Then it becomes what separates men from one another, what brings them to the great war of all against all. Not only to the war of nation against nation, parenthesis, for the conception of a nation will then no longer have the significance it possesses today, close parenthesis, but to the war of each single person against every other person in every branch of life, to the war of class against class, of caste against caste, and sex against sex. Thus in every field of life the ego will become the bone of contention, and hence we may say that it can lead on the one hand to the highest and on the other to the lowest. For this reason it is a sharp two-edged sword. And he who brought full equal consciousness to man, Christ Jesus, is, as we have seen, symbolically and correctly represented in the Apocalypse as one who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. He has climbed up it. They take each other's hands. Walk into the bedroom
and come not to bring peace but the sword, saith the Lord. So animals, a bestial lower nature, primal being, ego and the intellect as what represents what is most divine in us but also potentially most satanic. There's a correlation here that when the beast aspect of our natures isn't, hasn't been purified and integrated in a healthy way, then somehow that divine spark of ego, uh, I am, amen, gets um, co-opted by Satan. It's somewhat paradoxical because it's the, the disconnect from or the disowning or the rejection of our animal nature of our physicality that allows us to be possessed by it. And I think <clears throat> one of the aspects here, the experiential elements, is rage. Which I've been feeling a lot of recently. I say a lot. Perhaps not compared to the past, but it's more noticeable now. And it's not as though it's been expressing itself much. But I just noticed how the smallest things trigger it. I even got angry yesterday when Dave said that we should might as well not bother getting out of bed if we weren't going to eat the peel of oranges and experience the fullness of the orange nature by doing so, which is kind of animalistic, eating the husks, which I'd say relates to coming stuff from Steiner, the husks relating to these animal forms that get shed as we evolve beyond them. Um, but anyway, the ego, like the sense of existing as a separate self, which isn't akin to the false identity, although it can become that. Uh, in the theological model and in Steiner's model, it's the opportunity of voluntary surrender to God, the voluntary love of God rather than one that's imposed through, well, the absence of free will. We're just spiritual automatons, as Lucifer supposedly wants. And so, as this identity forms in early life, if there are too many adverse experiences, then the, the question of love becomes fraught with pain, and that pain, love plus pain, equals rage, equals hatred, which is the war against all. And what I'm wondering is happening with me lately is because it seemed odd that I'm living a more natural life probably than ever before and I seem to be more fully aligned with my nature and with nature. But I'm experiencing a corresponding resistance and anger as if I was getting it all wrong and wanting to say fuck it 
if I have to eat, eat the peels of oranges, then this is just, it's just a, a demand too far. I just can't cross that line. Enough is enough. I will not eat the husks of oranges. I'll just eat orange like an ordinary civilized human being. Thank you very much. There's this kind of feeling of rebellion and revolt against such a trivial thing that I suspect that and also I've noticed that my digestion's a bit funny lately even though I'm eating perfectly well and I haven't been watching movies for a month so you'd expect my health in every way to be better but and it is perhaps but again there's this kind of well, I think it's one of the prices, the cost of purification, is that the more pure we become, the more sensitive, the more pure we have to be. It can accelerate exponentially until we find we can't do the things we used to do without suffering. And then that can cause a rage and a resentment and a pushback against what seems to be the all-devouring proximity of God's love is not going to leave anything for ourselves which relates to something Dave said yesterday also which is that the sun doesn't live for itself and that human beings he didn't say this but uh, are the only creatures on God's earth that have this illusion that we can just live for ourselves uh an interesting juxtaposition here to me is that uh, Dave also said that we could be so happy that I forget what, something, something and uh, it struck me that well, the juxtaposition with what Steiner said back in the 20s and before the black cat that we're moving into a phase of human evolution in which it would be impossible for anyone to be happy unless everyone's happy which would seem to me that no one could ever be happy if thought about logically but anyway needless to say that was a, a trigger for some irritation on my part too I thought that I might finally be discovering happiness only to move into a phase where everyone has to be happy otherwise I can't be. So all this was roundabout way of circling the problem of the sore of the ego or the sore ego which secretes and emits toxins either to purify or to corrupt or both perhaps, I mean potentially both. Um, depending on how cathartic it is and how conscious it is we have to cleanse our egos, we have to cleanse our intellects so that we can become more and more intimately interconnected or aware of our connections, interconnections without going ballistic and doubling down schizogenetically and becoming more and more opposed to and hostile towards one another, which is how the war of all against all is sparked off. 
the bifurcation is intensified by awareness of a bifurcation. How could it not be? You start teaching sheep that they're sheep and that the ghosts are going to be goats are going to be cast out, then uh, the sheep are going to become quite proud sheep, top heavy, and it might turn out that the goats are the ones who are favoured after all. Jokes on you. So, I have to stop walking because it's getting tired and winded and a bit irritable. And of course, all that's going to convey. What I really want to convey is peace, even though Jesus didn't bring peace. He brought the sword. But maybe not because he wanted to. Just because he had no choice to be what he was. A wielder of a sword. Or even a sword. In the hand of the Father who art in heaven anyway uh, what Stein is describing here and this is continues consistently throughout the segments that I've selected is the apocalypse as the most epic event imaginable not just historically but um, biologically, psychologically and spiritually it's the ultimate event to end all events so for the human mind slash intellect slash ego it is the, the largest and most epic context imaginable to find itself positioned with it for it then to begin to believe that it's gaining understanding of its position and of the uh, process that it's embedded within is potentially well, it potentially would influence the outcome of the process itself for constituents within it to become aware of the process that they're embedded in but what I mean to say here is, is that my sense from listening to Stein or Dale reading Stein on this is that Although this seems impossible to know kind of occult knowledgey stuff, the context that it creates is one that I've been aware of for a long time to call the body politic, but it's really the it's beyond politics. It's the metaphysical equivalent of the body politic, which is that uh, any processes that we might view around us externally, uh, historically and beyond, collectively, are inside of and corresponding with an internal process that corresponds with cycles of nature and bodily functions and so on. And so the apocalypse... And the revelation as described and mapped, and this whole this whole uh, taxonomy that Stein is sharing of spiritual science and occult knowledge around human evolution, etc. I would say that it's only even possible for him to know this, and that it only really makes sense insofar as it corresponds macrocosmically with what we already experienced to some degree microcosmically through bodily processes and natural cycles that 
the body of God, to use shorthand, itself, uh, well, has functions such as indigestion and excretion and sweating and menstruating and uh, ejaculating and breathing and growing old and giving birth and so on from the most subtle to the least subtle and maybe even exists in a, in a larger world outside of the body of God I mean where is the at what point does the eternal unchanging formless um, enter into the changing world of forms the sixth epoch is the descended astral world that is to say the images the expressions the manifestations of it the seventh epoch will be the descended heavenly world the expression of it and then the earth will have reached the goal of its physical evolution the earth together with all its beings will then change into an astral heavenly body physical substance as such will disappear the part which until then will have been able to spiritualize itself will pass over into the spirit into astral substance at this point in the earth's evolution there will be an ascent into the spirit of forms which will live in the astral and which will separate from themselves another material sphere, a sphere which will contain beings unfit for the ascent, because they are unable to dissolve the material part. In this way our earth will advance toward its future. Through the souls gradually refining matter from within, the substance of the earth will become more and more refined, until it receives the power to dissolve. Then will come the time when the insoluble part will be ejected as a separate globe. In the course of seven ages what has hardened itself in matter will be driven out, and the power which drives it out will be the opposite force to the one which shall have forced the good beings upward. What then will lead to the dissolution of matter? The power of love gained through the Christ principle. Beings become capable of dissolving matter through taking love into their souls. The more the soul is warmed by love, the more powerfully will it be able to work on matter. It will spiritualize, astralize the whole earth and transform it into an astral globe. But just as love dissolves matter, as warm water dissolves salt, so will the opposite of love press down, again throughout seven stages, everything which has not become capable of fulfilling the earth mission. The contrary of divine love is called divine wrath. That is the technical expression for it. Just as in the course of the fourth age of culture this love was imprinted in mankind, just as it will become warmer and warmer through the last stages in our epoch, the sixth and seventh, so, on the other hand, there is growing what hardens matter around itself, divine wrath. This effect of the divine wrath, this expulsion of matter, is indicated in the Apocalypse of John by the outpouring 
of the seven vials of divine wrath. Imagine what the whole condition will be. A substance of the earth will become finer and finer. The substantial part of man will also become more and more spiritual. And the coarsest parts will only be visible in the finer part like the skins or shells sloughed off, for example by reptiles or snails. These harder parts will thus become more and more attached to the substance which is growing finer. In the last epoch, the epoch of the sounding of the trumpets, you would with spiritual vision see how men consist of delicate spiritualized bodies and how those who have hardened the material principle in themselves have preserved in themselves what today are the most important constituents of matter and how this will fall as husks into the material globe which will be left after the epoch indicated by the sounding of the trumpets. This is prophetically described in the Apocalypse of John, and it is important to develop a feeling in our souls about this knowledge of what is coming, so that it may fire our will. Note the word feeling a feeling in our souls and our bodies, not an intellectual comprehension or cognition or belief. Man has the seven heads and ten horns within him. He must now work upon these through the reception of the Christ principle so that they shall be destroyed, so to speak. For each time a man dies, the seven-headed and ten-horned nature can clearly be seen in his astral body. This is merely held together like a piece of India rubber, which has been correspondingly formed. Now suppose a person hardened himself during our epoch against the Christ principle and were to come to the time of the great war of all against all without having had the Christ experience. Suppose he were to come to this time and had thrust the Christ away from him. Then when the earth passes over into the astral, whatever was there, and which he ought to have changed, would spring forth. It would spring forth in its old form. The beast with the seven heads and ten horns would appear, whereas in those who have received the Christ principle, sexuality will again be overcome. The hardened ones will keep the six-horned sexuality and will appear in their totality as the beast with the seven heads and ten horns of which the rudiments were laid down in the Atlantean epoch. They can be transformed through the reception of the Christ impulse. But if Christ is rejected, they will remain and will reappear in the period indicated by the pouring out of the vials of wrath and the earth splitting, as it were, into two parts, one in which the Christ men appear with white garments as the elect, already in the epoch of the seals, and the other part in which men appear in the form of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Then appears also another beast with two horns, symbolized by the number 666. It won't take long for the storm to pass let me in, let me help you, don't make me go away, 
Steiner's saying, because I'm listening to him on the book of Revelation, is that those who take in the Christ into them and, and become aligned with it, uh, that they sh- shed the animal crust, the beast, they integrate it and shed it sort of simultaneously. I think because he's saying that the beast is the horns and whatnot, they do relate to phases, stages of the human energy field's evolution. Um, so they have to be shed, just as we have to leave behind childish things to become adults, similar. And, and in the conventional evolutionary model, we have to leave behind our animal nature to become fully human, evolve from animal to human. But then those who who don't, who reject the Christ, consciously or not, um, they they hold on to that animal beast 
aspect of themselves that they um, they become just crust they become like hardened crust and uh, as we move from physical existence, I mean ordinary organic physical existence, into, he's saying, spiritual via the astral, the earth, in the seventh phase after the war turned, the war of all against all. Uh, yeah, the, the earth and humanity, or the human collective, moves shifts consciously for some of us or maybe this is the distinction from from the organic physical into astral and its transitional journey to spiritual eternal which is the white robed uh, ones Christ beings in the revelation then there's this other portion that uh, and that that's dependent on having cleared out the the residue of the beastly organic nature in times of transition. But those who haven't, they then encounter the beast, as it were, outside of themselves, and. Uh, and uh, as this husk that gets left behind, I think, I haven't interpreted this, but and he's also saying that uh, that our soul affiliation or alignment or sympathy orientation will show more and more physically. So literally on our foreheads, the nature of our souls will begin to be written. And the, thereby the, the people who've aligned with evil will become more and more these distorted, twisted, husk-like, physical representatives of evil. and become more and more identifiable as such and the bifurcation of good and evil in the human energy field becomes literally manifest physically through individual human bodies and this isn't the war of all against all as far as I understood this is after the war of all against all Maybe it's during it, I don't know. It's very unclear like where where we're at logistically or temporarily because when he was speaking we were in, in the fifth stage and the, there's a thick, sixth cultural stage which has to do with the materialization of the astral and that does seem to fit with where we're at now I'd say the transgender and all that stuff. And then the seventh 
phase is the more of all against all it's after that but there's um well I think it's after that but after that something I mean this is it's a slippery slope to try and interpret the an interpretation of the book of Revelation but I'm going to I'm going to walk it in a future podcast I'd say it's a slippery slope that is on the way like on a mountain we have to we have to move along to get where we're going we don't want to go up it or down it we're going to go across it the slippery slope, slope of apocalypse, uh, analysis. Oh, this narrative, it's the, the apocalypse narrative. Like it's, it's the mind, how the mind makes sense, makes coherent what's happening socially, historically, uh, in, in the delusional realm of mind, what's happening to it, basically, it's apocalypse. So how the artificial mind submits to and is absorbed into the natural mind is apocalypse, is revelation, I think. In certain sense, it's good versus evil, natural mind versus artificial mind. So yeah, those who are fully aligned with pledge to artificial mind, to the constructed identity, will become slowly more and more possessed by it. And they will be physically transformed, although it's not really a transformation, more like a gender reassignment surgery kind of thing of uh, mutilated I mean physically distorted corrupted, mutilated into um, a host for the artificial mind like a beast of burden for it for it to rain on and ride on And those are the armies of darkness, so-called. That's a Sam Raimi film, but very bad and lucid view too. I'm not sure where the phrase "armies of darkness" comes from. I don't think it's in the Bible. It might be the White Walkers. Um, and meantime, the natural mind. Would see this very differently. It's the strange thing. The apocalyptic perspective narrative, to a degree, is belongs to the artificial mind, because language is the uh, province of the artificial mind, the sustenance of it. But it's not possible, or desirable, even to. We can't desire what's not possible to uh, 
to shirk off the narrative and just say, well, it's, um, it's a distortion, a fabrication, because that would also be a narrative. Um, I say that the Christian narrative and the apocalypse narrative is a, um, a necessary slope to cross, as slippery as it is. Because it's, it's the one that reveals the machinery of our crucial fiction making devices, our artificial minds. It's like we, when we were going in and we knew we'd forget, we left some device to remind us that we were generating these narratives and we'd get lost in them and that device is the Gospel of the New Testament uh, including that frickin' book, the Book of Revelation because that book is the bitterest pill of all even for me who has always had an apocalyptic yearning uh, I don't like that book I mean I like citing it and referencing it but I don't like reading it it doesn't uh, lift me up the way that the gospel can and it feels uh, heavy and obtuse obscure so Steiner's interpretation at least opens it up in a way that I'd say liberates it or uncouples it from the Christian eschatology and apocalypticism which although I'm sympathetic to in its generalities and specifics it's, it's abhorrent to me of course I'm all about get right with God and sinners will be cast in the pit of fire and that's punitive and revenge driven kind of smoke satisfaction of being on the side of the righteous all that stuff's kind of the worst of our human delusion which again is oh, it's revealing it's revealing the mechanism of our incarceration and where it leads to and with the <coughs> unreconcilable conundrum that there will be a separation of wheat from chaff and that those who are chaff are those who are identified either with wheat or with chaff just as much those who think they're on the side of righteousness well, because they all do, we all do, one way or another.
in addition to the content about which we have been speaking. The book of Revelation also has an aspect that makes it a book of initiation. This is the way in which it describes evolution in time, the sequence of stages that it will become possible for those to experience who have ears to hear and eyes to see, whereas it will, of course, pass by those who are earless and eyeless. These various stages are introduced to us through the inner nature of the content which shows us that the book of Revelation is indeed a book of initiation. We must realize that as we enter consciously into the world, as our vision expands more and more, those things will disappear which are at present the content of our soul life and which are actually a kind of mirror image of external nature. The physical, sense-perceptible world disappears as we move forward with inner vision, and then gradually, as though emerging out of the background, the spiritual world comes into view from the other side. The apocalyptist shows quite clearly that he has a very intense, correct understanding of how to enter into a relationship with the spiritual world, and this is what has enabled him to discover so appropriately what he has been able to discover in his imaginative visions. There are, dear friends, two ways of seeing the spiritual aspect of the world. The one is simply to dwell upon the physical sense-perceptible aspects, getting to know them from all angles with a kind of loving devotion. Through this you learn to recognize it as the work of the gods. You have before you what we mean by nature, in quotes, in the widest sense, when you look at the physical world, not only externally and mechanically, but also inwardly and spiritually. We can also imagine, however, and we would be right to do so, that it would be possible to arrive at the same world content in a purely spiritual way, from the inside, through one's own soul. You can then go so far as to say that someone with sufficient inner strength might, even if he had nothing historical to go on, see something at a specific point in world events, something that manifested as a natural phenomenon. It is perfectly possible to begin with an inside view and arrive at the outward conclusion. In such and such a year, when a certain event occurred for humanity, there were earthquakes and so on. Many people have the feeling, whether they are aware of it or not, that it is possible for the human being to get to know the concrete details of the world by beginning from within. And this feeling is perfectly correct. But what is actually happening when a human being enters the spiritual world on the path of imagination? We can discuss this in connection with the book of Revelation. For in this book we find described the sequence of different stages in which the apocalyptist sees things, and these lead further and further into the spiritual world. First he introduces us to letters, then to seals, then he moves on to something that in human language can only be expressed by something audible, namely the trumpets, and from there he reaches what I described the day before yesterday as the divine love, with its counterpart, the divine wrath. When we understand him rightly, we know he is telling us 
that what he gives us through the content of the book of Revelation, by means of the letters he has received through inspiration, relates to the physical world. When he moves on to the seals and opens them, this relates to the astral world, the world of imagination, what can be called the soul world. With the sounding trumpets, we enter spirit land. And when we experience the divine love and the divine wrath in accordance with the content of the book of Revelation, we are entering the inner realm of spirit land. We must realize that while he is treading this path of imagination, the human being is in the world with his experience, so that his experience is world experience. But he does not notice this in the initial stages. The more his initiation progresses, the more he experiences how whatever takes place with him, through him, in him, is also taking place cosmically. He feels himself more and more to be poured out into the objective content of the cosmos. The Apocalyptist hints at this very clearly. We can say then that the content of the letters refers to the physical world. Let us look at the physical world as it appears before us. This physical world only seems to be what we see before us. This physical world would not present all those myriad nuances of color, nuances of heat and cold, and all the other nuances that flow toward the human being from all directions. If we were to think in all that appears to us in the present age, only of its physical content, and fail to notice that what appears to be physical is actually spiritual. Looking into the soul of a human being, such as the apocalyptist, we must learn his soul language, and this soul language, S-O-U-L, must grow so familiar for our own personal spiritual use that we can feel it in our bones, to use an everyday expression. I should therefore like to introduce you to those parts of the inner soul language of the initiate which he does not always use externally, but which provide the means by which he can inwardly form his inner pictures, his own personal sharing in the spiritual world. Human beings are passing, speaking of an external world, are going to come and interrupt my chain of thought, hardly be more annoying, the timing. But I have to go with it, otherwise I'm not walking my talk. I'll keep it recording. Yeah, so it's very unlikely, because... Hola! There's not supposed to be anyone showing up here, ever. They're uh, pilgrims on bicycles. At least they're Spanish. So... Where was I? Bodily, bodily, bodily. I might consider chatting with them, but they put the masks on when they saw me. Well, and they stopped cycling, maybe, because you don't have to wear a mask when you're cycling. Yeah, he took it off as he cycles away. And she's got her smartphone to, go to figure that last now. Right, so the eternal, yeah. What point? Because we could see that we're in this 
in our lived lives as human beings in cities and towns and villages and, and countryside that we're temporal and that, that things happen and things change and that there are these natural cycles within time that are pretty much predictable. Uh, now if we pull all the way out to the eternal, well, yeah, nothing ever happens, it just is, it's just infinite eternal consciousness um, out of which temporary phenomena, which is relatively illusory, is generated. So how, how far can we go outward, macrocosmically, metaphysically, before we hit the ring past knot, on the other side of which is the eternal? unchanging. In other words, wouldn't it follow that just as there are these observable patterns and cycles in nature and the human body uh, in our own experience down here, that there would be at higher levels too, even all the way up to angels and archangels so-called, and this may even be how and why they exist at all, because of the larger body of existence being like a human body or a natural body, uh, all the way to God. I mean, God, by definition, is outside of everything as well as imminent. So, but what's the ultimate? You know, the, the, the most high God is still a God, even if he's the, the big God, the daddy of all gods. So, does God himself, in that sense, manifest, also have these natural cycles? And if so, is not the apocalypse and... Steineromics and uh, and then many lesser iterations or attempts to map existence entirely uh, aren't they attempts to to follow and track and thereby predict natural cycles within the the metaphysical hyper-object of existence? Question. And if so, the answer to that is yes. What happens when people get a hold of an intellectual understanding about these, these things? Because essentially we're talking about nothing, something that's no more unusual than, than than farts and belches, just on a much larger scale. But because it's on such a larger scale, and the context that it it introduces is that we are no more significant than farts and belches or the cells that die in a body when every second as the skin flakes and turns to dust as God moves about his business. Right? We're just these these microorganisms. So, but microorganisms that can potentially not just become conscious of being microorganisms and thereby one with a with a hyperorganism and therefore conscious of that at that level, but conscious of being this while remaining separate from it through our intellect. And and what happens then? What happens then, it seems to me, is, is that a microorganism, a human being, with access to the kind of knowledge that Steiner was sharing, for example, or Crowley, or Strieber, or Castaneda, or the Bible, could become, like a tick, super-inflated, 
on this information and more and more convinced of his or her own specialness and therefore more and more experiencing and acting from a sense of separateness, the ego that is inflated on the blood of the saints. And that would seem to be confirmed or corroborated by the people that I know who are into Steiner, actually. Not that there's very many, but one of them just came out on the blog as an operative and is a very unhealthy customer all around, I'd say, literally and, I mean, physically and psychologically. And uh, another is somebody I, I like, but don't really jibe with, doesn't seem to really be open to the deeper levels of what I'm up to, and uh, and so on. Now, I mean, I know a bunch of people are into Steiner, so actually I can't say this, but certainly some of them and the ones that stand out, I would say, have potentially been further destabilized by their interest in and imbibement of anthroposophical knowledge, spiritual science. There does seem to be something in the nature of occult knowledge and how and why it's occulted and why it seems to be a tool of Satan and of Lucifer and Ahriman. Uh, that it potentially overwhelms the intellect and thereby potentially reinforces it. Just as trauma can flood out our sense of who we are, our sense of selfness, and thereby create a crustacean identity as a defense against it. The intellect can interact with occult knowledge, profound information, in such a way that it's not ready for it, it, it becomes destabilized, and thereby incorporates the information to a way to restabilize itself and reinforce itself against the very knowledge that it's it's incorporating and becomes a crucial fiction. So in a certain senses it inverts the knowledge. So even though all of this if it's if it's felt into at a psychosomatic level leads to a dissolving through the warmth of love and a surrender to our inevitable, inescapable coexistence with all of existence uh, that we're inseparable from everything in it including or especially our fellow human beings within the human energy field uh, I forgot how I started the sentence so but so rather than that happening the reverse happens, the inversion which is that it reifies the sense of a separate ego identity, not as a vessel or a lens for the divine to shine through, but as a satanic defense against and rejection of the divine and of our collective uh, continuity of existence. And 
by that process, the knowledge itself becomes the currency by which the knowledge-gathering superego defines itself as separate from because superior to the masses who do not have this knowledge. It's a tragic, paradoxical irony, indeed, by which the first verily, verily become the last. The book of Revelation is, is the meta-text of all meta-texts. And I guess it's telling, revealing, that it is the epic narrative to end all narratives. That the way in which we are drawn or led to see that all of existence, all phenomena is within us, is through being overwhelmed at every level by the phenomena itself. That's the nature of apocalypse, is that reality becomes so apocalyptic, so overwhelming, that there are only two choices, one to harden and become a crust that is, is rejected, cast out by this emerging revealed reality and the other to surrender to it, to soften and open and surrender to it and thereby get absorbed into it. Just as we see that we are inside of existence, so we see that existence is inside of us. I wonder if it's a coincidence that I've finally found the Santiago Trail, not that I've been looking for it, but I've been doing all these walks and explorations and wondering if I could find trails through nature so I wouldn't have to keep to the roads or climb over fences or take paths that go nowhere, dead ends and get lost and all that kind of stuff. Wondering, well, Santiago de Compostela has got many different trails. I mean, they do walk on roads and stuff, but still wondering and even thinking maybe I should look for it on a map, but never getting around to it, because the map I use, Google Earth, doesn't have Santiago trails on it. Anyway, uh, it's yesterday and today that I've discovered this trail where I live currently, and uh, I don't know how long it continues through nature before I have to go on a road, but uh, there's at least an hour's worth of it so far. And that's a wonderful discovery, because now uh, I can take regular walks through nature and stay away from roads, more or less. I decided to end this first audio segment, Vines of Wrath, here and 
place the second part, the apocalypse mirror, behind the play wall. It just seemed wise, really. We should measure out the vials of broth homeopathically, not just pour them onto people's cornflakes willy-nilly. If you've already initiated yourself into the third phase, which is getting an encrypted email account, you should receive a uh, password for this audio before you even listen to this. If you haven't done that, and or if you haven't received any password, just uh, send me an email to jasonwithau at protonmail.com. Next week's podcast is a crossover with the Dodcast. We're talking to Luke Dodson about the apocalypse and then there should be a second part over at the Dodcast. Wish you a very happy Passover, Easter, however it is that you celebrate it. I hope it'll be wholesome, healthy, hearty and full of loving community.